0: Welcome to the Thinking Leader podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, we bring you new ideas and insights from business leaders, military leaders, and thought leaders. Ideas and insights that will help you think more deeply and lead more effectively so that you can better navigate your complex world. Here again are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former Royal Air Force Wing Commander and business agility coach, Marcus Dimbleby.
1: Hello and welcome to the show. I am Bryce Hoffman. I am joined as always by...
2: Marcus Dimbleby. Great to be back online again with you, Bryce. What are we going to be talking about this week, my friend?
1: I was thinking that we should talk about toxic leadership, Marcus, because there has been a heck of a lot of it going around these days. It's been in the news. And I, I just think it's something that is really an important issue always, but an important issue right now at a time when organizations, whether it's the private sector, whether it's government, whether it's the military, are facing unprecedented challenges. Toxic leadership is the last thing we need. And yet we see so many cases of it these days that's got me concerned. What do you think? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head with
2: that one. I think it's uh, hugely prevalent. I think it's become possibly worse over the last few years. And I think the, the pandemic and the drive to remote working has brought these individuals even more out of the woodwork. And they're their raison d'être is now executed through the online platforms more so than you know, patrol in the office space. And it's having an impact on people. And you can see that and sense it every day.
1: It is. And and you know, you 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 hit on something important, which is how the whole change in the workplace that has been affected by the pandemic has has both revealed how prevalent toxic leadership is and also kind of increased it in some points. So I wrote a piece recently for Forbes on Elon Musk and uh, some of these other folks uh, who have been really kind of dictatorial in their demands for workers to return to the workplace 40 hours a week in the office, pretend like the last two and a half years didn't happen. And as I mentioned in that piece, when I read the comments from people like Musk and and David Solomon, it sounds like, it sounds like the stereotype of like the robber baron industrialist from the early 20th century, you know, kind of saying, get back to the mines, men, you know, who cares if there's a cave in, you know, get to work. And, you know, that doesn't fly anymore. Um, It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't fly in a world where that type of language that is, we see in memos and tweets and stuff from people like Musk is easily shared with customers, with investors, and it doesn't work in a world in which you know employees have realized that they have choices, and many of them have decided it. And the result is the Great Resignation that we've been dealing with. That they're not going to take that anymore. Uh, you talked
2: about the Great Resignation. The, the more I'm seeing, the more I'm reading. I don't think it's a resignation we've seen. I think it's a migration. Hmm. Just exactly as you said, I think people are just going, do you know what? I'm not tolerating this. And I think one of the big revelations of you know, the downtime during the pandemic is people seeing that there are other and better places to work. And there are organizations that want this progressive behavior, that want this freedom of you know, choice. And people have the ability where they can do so and the type of work they're doing to have that choice. And not, as you said, this mandated get down the pits sort of mentality. And I'm, I'm a Yorkshireman; I'd love to go down the pits, but you know, <laughs> not anymore. But but I, I think I think it's a real disparity between what's happened over the last two years and how things you know things were changing anyway. We've seen that in the last decade with digital technology. But what happened in the last two years, I think, has been a pivotal moment in in the workplace and in the way people view and see work as a as a thing of their life. And it's now no longer that driving, all-encompassing thing that everybody focuses on. It's now becoming a part of. And there's just no such thing as now as a work-life balance. It's just one whole thing. And how you manage those things together is what's really important to people. But I don't sense that a lot of executives have got that. I don't think they've seen that. I think they think, oh, it's over. Everybody now back to what we we're doing two years ago. And that's just not going to happen. And I don't understand how that isn't clear and apparent to individuals
1: unless you're just walking around with your blinkers on. You know how it's not clear and apparent? Because they're afraid. This is an attitude that is born, I believe, out of fear. Fear of, well, if I'm not looking over my employee's shoulders, they're probably not working. And yet, yeah. you know, not every company, but many, many companies during yeah. the pandemic found that productivity rates for office workers actually increased, some yeah. cases substantially when people worked at home. And and I'm not not advocating the solution is to let everybody work from home because obviously there's value in the collaboration that happens when you you get people together in the same room. And and there's serendipitous learnings that happen, there's discoveries that happens, there's innovation that happens. But this hybrid model that a lot of more forward-thinking companies and a lot of more forward-thinking leaders, a lot of less insecure leaders than Elon Musk are embracing, is the best of both worlds. It lets people have more control over how they balance their lives between work and home and other things without sacrificing productivity, but it also gives them opportunities to come together and work together. And you see that in Apple, you see that in Google, you see that in a lot of the, the companies that are held up as models of, of the way forward for, for kind of work in the future. Are, are seeing that a hybrid model, regardless of the pandemic, is beneficial. And the interesting thing about it is, is that, and you and I have talked about this before, is companies were trying to do this. Many companies were trying to do this before the pandemic. And they couldn't figure out how. I mean, the reason we have all these digital tools, the reason we have Slack, the reason we have all these things has been to enable a new way of working that is less tethered to sitting in a cubicle with a flickering fluorescent light over your head, you know, typing away while you're trying to dr- drown out, you know, Bob in the cubicle next door having a, a fight with his wife or something like that, you know, and and yet people couldn't really figure out how to make that leap, and now they have. Yeah. And and yet you still have some leaders who are who are threatened by that. Yeah, you
2: nailed it. It's the fear factor, and I like what you said. But these companies who are focused on working together, and I think that's the big differentiator. You know, you. The the executives that we get the the pleasure to work with, you know. I remember we did that podcast a couple of weeks ago with Mick Mick Paisley, and I loved how he kept saying, "My leaders, my leaders." Yeah, and they were below him, and it, and it, and it was you know words mean things, and the way you speak about your environment, he called himself the architect of the environment. He I mean, was he amazing, loved incredible. Love that. He wasn't the leader. He was a an enabler of the leaders who worked for him. And his role was to enable those people. And he really focused on working together. Same with Alam Manali, the working right. together practice and principles. But the problem is, you know, the, these toxic leaders we're talking about, they're self-centered. They've got self-centered attitudes. And that goes back to that fear. It's about me, my progression, and therefore to enable others to come into that circle inner circle of trust, if you will, that they have, and it's a very small circle, they see it as a threat rather than a capability, you know, as we know, great leaders see as an, an ability to expand their awesomeness. You know, I, I've always been great by being surrounded by great people, and together we create greatness, you know. I've never worked in isolation because it doesn't work. You always achieve more, as we say. None of us is as smart of all of us. Right. But these individuals who suppress and repress that and also It's quite sad, really, because they're holding themselves back and such capability that they probably got. But because of these perspectives that, for whatever reason, they've grown up with or they've been brought up with, and often it's a like-v-like, isn't it? They've been promoted by someone similar to them, and you've had that sort of tuition throughout your life and, you know, groomed into that position. And then you start to perform in that same behavioral way. And I think now is that, that reflection point for people to say, well, look... And what's nice now is there's so much evidence out there that you can now go and give examples to organizations when we're working with them to say, look, this is happening over here. Here's how they behaved, and look at the result. Over this side, however, fifty percent of their workforce left after one month because of the CEO saying, "Everyone, go back to work, no questions."
1: Well, you know? absolutely. Look at what happened at, at, at Goldman when David Solomon <laughs> ordered everyone back to work. Half the people didn't show up. I mean, what is it now? Now you were you were worried about your ability to control your workforce, so you order them back to work. Now you've really lost a huge amount of control. You've lost a huge amount of authority when half of your workforce doesn't show up. That's really undermined your position as a leader. Whereas if you trusted your employees and said, said, folks, what makes sense to you? Do you want to come back to the office? Do you want to switch to a hybrid model? What works for you? Now you've actually increased your authority because you have the confidence to do that. And I really want to go back to something you said that I think is really important, which is that this idea that they're thinking about themselves, about their about promoting themselves, about their own authority, about threats to their own authority. So if you have a leader, if you're a CEO, and I'm going to keep picking on Elon Musk because I think he really is the poster child for this kind of toxic leadership we're talking about. If you're Elon Musk and you're so insecure that that you can't trust your workers to work without your, your supervision, if if you can't brook dissent, you know, he 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 he's famously wants to open Twitter up as a free speech platform so anyone can say what they want. But when people criticized his leadership at SpaceX and raised valid concerns about workplace environment, he fired them all. And so when you're that when you're that insecure. How are you are you putting shareholders first? No. Are you putting customers first? No. If you're if you're treating your employees like that, that should be a red flag to Wall Street, it should be a red flag to business partners that this is someone I can't trust because they're always going to put their own insecurities first, they're going to be driven by that. They're not going to be driven by creating shareholder value, by creating customer experience that I want. And you see that at Tesla. Tesla has had one steady string of missed targets Failure to ship, problems, yeah. people losing deposits and not being able to get them back. Why? Because they're not putting customers first. And you know, similarly, they've missed their their projections to Wall Street so many quarters. Why? Because they're not putting investors first. So this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. If you're the type of leader that can't brook dissent, that doesn't want to hear what your employees have to say, that wants to dictate to them, then you're also probably the type of leader that doesn't care what Wall Street really thinks about you at the end of the day, and really doesn't care at all about what your customers get out of your engagement with you. Uh, yeah, and
2: then you're falling into a very different zone, uh, you know, what we call it the dark triad, you know, where you've got this psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellian behaviors, where 4% of CEOs and executives fall into that, and once you get into that side of psychology, you know it's a very different world of dealing with that versus the the lone renegade who's just got imposter syndrome. And I think going back to that imposter syndrome, it's in- interesting, isn't it? I mean, the Peter Principle—you know, people get promoted to their level of incompetence by how good they are at their core job. And we were discussing with clients today about the differences between, you know, what is predominantly known as the hard skills—you know, those things that we train for that we recruit for, that we write our resumes and CVs for. But then really what's getting people on and making them effective in today's you know, complex world are these soft skills. And as we right. talk about you know, critical thinking, emotional intelligence, I mean, boy, is that lacking. In, in the examples you've just talked of, these individuals who are so lacking in emotional intelligence, I don't care how clever they are, you know, rocket right. scientists, one and all. But if you don't have EQ today, in this generation, where I don't care about technology and processes, we are all about people. And if you've not, if you've not got that yet, if that ship hasn't sailed for you, that that's the way we need to be going. Then you're going to be left on the dock scratching your head in a few years on your own, or or along with a few other compadres who are of your ilk, because everyone else isn't going to tolerate this. And you know, it's funny how you talked about Goldman Sachs. I can bet you anything. And you know, I talked about the migration. Those individuals who've been getting calls that day, going, "Hey, I'm a recruiter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work for a bank where the CEO is very progressive, and he'd like to invite you to come and work for us. Where we have flexible working. We'd like to engage you and get your input. And where they're going to go, they're not going to stick around at one va- bank where it's mandated how they behave and what they do. People are going to migrate, and it's not because the CEO told you to do something anymore. Those days have sailed. Ships have sailed, you know. And we're seeing, sadly." This is still happening in the military. And, you know, you and I talk about, um, you know, brief about mission command, you know, Auschwitz tactic, this devolved decision-making responsibility that that David Marquet talks so well about with intent-based leadership. You know, it's a phenomenal capability. It's been around for centuries, but, you know, I've I've been disappointed to hear, and I saw it when I was in the military, these behaviours still exist, where you've got these inner circles of senior officers, and we've seen it, sadly, at some very high levels, Uh, you know, over the last decade with incidents that have occurred. And, you know, I recently received a message from somebody who was chatting to them. They said, you know, they go to work, they keep their head down, they don't feel valued, they're aware of the toxicity. And if they put their head above the parapet, there's going to be repercussions for them. Uh, And it really saddened me to hear that. And they said, all they do is go in, protect those below them, try and give those below them the opportunity to safely evolve and grow and challenge but they just become a shield over the top, and they don't progress themselves because when they've tried, you know, it's it's a spear that comes down and quickly puts them back where they need to be or where they should be according to those above them. So this isn't just something that it's the the spoms, if you will, at the top of these executive organizations.
1: Wow, that's 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 it's so sad when you get a message like that when you hear people in that position. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about. Being, in, being that person, being that person in the middle of the organization, being a leader yeah, who if that's you. is doing the right thing for the, your team, for their team, but trying to manage up to their leaders as well. We'll be right back. Are you a red team thinker? Are you the person in the room who is always asking the tough questions? Do you see what others don't? Do you find yourself muttering, I told you so, too often after plans have gone awry because nobody listened to your good idea? If so, then you might be. Take our free assessment and find out. There's a link to it in the notes below. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. Wow, you know, I I was just thinking during the break, Marcus, about this message that you shared from this 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 officer and it raises a point that we get asked about a lot both by folks in the military but also from our clients in government and business as well which is what if i am that guy in the middle or that gal in the middle i'm i'm i've got a team of people i'm trying to be an effective leader for my team but at the end of the day i feel like i spend most of my time protecting my team from those above me. It's not a good place to be. And it's a, it's a question that when I was at, at the U.S. Army's Red Team Leader course at Fort Leavenworth back in 2015, several of my classmates raised this issue with our instructors because They were worried about going back to their units when they graduated from the red team leader course and worried. You know, they knew who the generals in charge of their units were. (laughs) And and in some cases they were like, you know, man, these tools and techniques are so powerful. I can't wait to put them to use. But I'm also really scared because I know when I go back to fill in the blank that. The old man at the top is not going to want to hear anything that contradicts what he he believes to be the case, even if it's right, even if it's saving him from himself. And this led to a really robust discussion in our class about, about how you use red teaming, red team thinking when you're not the person at the top of the house, when you're not in charge of the unit, you know, when you're not the senior leader. And there's some really interesting things that came out of this, and they apply to business as well as to, to the military. And one is the the U.S. Army identified this concept that they call My 15%. And it's based on some real important research that's been done in the area of organizational psychology that has found that in any organization, whether it's a military unit, whether it's a, it's a manufacturer, whether it's a government organization, everybody in the organization from the C-suite to the factory floor has at minimum about 15% of their job that they have the ability to directly influence the way things happen. And that may not seem like much, but the power of cumulative action is exponential. So if you think about it, if you've got 10 mid-level leaders in an organization who are working in an organization that doesn't have... A, a great culture above them that has, a, has toxic leadership above them. But if those 10 leaders focus on the 15% of the organization that they have influence over and use that as a catalyst to listen to their teams, to, to make sure that there's diversity of thought on their teams, to make sure that there is distributed decision-making on their teams, that will start to have a cumulative effect that will begin to change the culture of the organization as a whole, maybe not overnight, but inevitably. And so one of the things is to, is to think about my 15% to think about what parts of your job do you have control over? What parts of your job can you influence? And the answer is never going to be nothing. Even if you're a janitor, There are parts of your job that you can influence. You can make improvements without having to get permission from anybody. You just see a problem. You see, you know, we don't do this this particular cleaning procedure the right way. I'm going to do it the right way without asking for permission. And in most cases, someone's going to come along sooner or later and say, hey, why does that room look so much cleaner than the other rooms? Oh, because I did it this way. And then it becomes a a catalyst for change, opportunity for change. So focus on your 15% is the first thing. The second thing is also to remember that there are a lot of leaders who do want to know what's going on in their organization, who do want to be challenged in a constructive way, but they don't know how to ask for that. They don't know how to go to their teams and say, tell me what's really going on at... In my own organization. But if you talk to, and I've worked with a lot of CEOs over the years, I mean hundreds of CEOs at some of the biggest companies in the world. And if you ask them, what is your greatest anxiety? The number one answer, the number one answer across the board that I have heard back all the way going back to the 1990s, when I was covering the semiconductor industry in Silicon Valley and the software industry in, in Silicon Valley, covering the biotech industry in San Francisco Bay Area, covering the automobile industry in Detroit and then covering all the companies we've worked with um, with red team thinking, the number one anxiety that CEOs have is that they don't know what they don't know. Well, the only way you're going to learn what you don't know is by listening to your people. So one of the, the things that we focus on in our work is giving those leaders tools that they can use to surface ideas that they need to hear, that their teams need to hear, that they need to hear from their teams about what's really going on and to recognize that the answers that they need are more likely right there inside their own organization than residing in a glass tower that says Deloitte or McKinsey or KPMG on the top of it. So that is two things that you can do if you're in that position Is to one, focus on your 15%, but two, try to reach out to your leader and sit down and say, hey, you know, I have some ideas on how we might be able to surface ideas within our organization, how we might be able to tackle some of the challenges we're facing. What do you think if we tried this? And enlist them in that rather than just hitting them over the head with, you know, hey, you're a bad leader. You don't know what's going on. Say, hey, you know, let me help you. That's
2: such a great point, Bryce, because so often when you, you know, when you get to the nub of these problems, everybody looks upwards. Everybody blames upwards. And, you know, when we were teaching clients, you know, you said, look, this is on you. You know, If you get this superpower that you've started to learn now, this is now on you to do something, even if it's just your 15%, as you said, because it's very easy to look up and to blame. But then obviously when we move around the organizations and then we're working with those executives who the week before were being blamed and we start to get to understand what they're dealing with, they're almost, if not more, fearful and you mentioned it earlier, than those below them because there's so much more riding at their level. And if they don't show a little humility and vulnerability, which goes back to that EQ, I think some of the biggest things executives can do, show today is share what's going on. Right. You know, just start, hey, I've no idea what's going on. I need you great people to share with me your knowledge and support me in what we need to do as a team together. Because if you don't do that, the people are just going to assume the worst and think that, you know, you're, you're doing this for a reason. But if you're at that level below, as you said, you know, you've know you got your 15%, you've got this capability now. Don't look up, look down. Because down are people who are looking up at you, and they might be thinking the same of you. So if you can enable those people below you, you start to create this downward cascade of capability. And then that leader above is going to be looking at you, and most of these individuals are results-driven. So if they look down and see your team cooking on gas and like, wow, How come Bob's team's doing really well and Susan's team's clearly picked up lately what's going on. And that's because Susan and Bob have been focusing on their people. Right. And engaging their people and enabling their people.
1: And they're they're 15%.
2: They're focusing on their 15%. And each one of those cascades times 10. And then Bob and Susan become more free because they're not doing all the work they're delegating where possible. And now they're able to support their leader and take work off of them and show them they've got capacity. And this all goes back to the whole team's now working together. And and it's a Machiavellian way. And I I love when we've used our tools with clients. Someone said to us, this is a really, really sneaky toolkit, isn't it, Marcus? And I'm like, it it is, if you want it to be, because you can use it, but you use it for the right intent. Right. But, you know, as we say, we don't walk around going, hey, we're all red teaming. Just do a little tool. Make a little difference. And people go, that's really good. What did you do? Oh, we we just got the team together and had a chat. Okay. Can, can I come along and sit in and watch how you do it? You start to spread the love that way. And then before you know it, it starts to become a thing. Right. And you change people's mindsets. And that's how you get that cultural shift that we talk about by just those small tweaks in people's behaviors. Learn one of these little simple tools and use it in your meetings. When you're looking for opinions, don't stick a box on the wall saying put your answers in. You're not going to get anything. You know, Engage people in the right way. Using these capabilities, instant behavioral change. And when that happens, it doesn't have to take long. People's mindset and perspectives start to change. Right. And then they start to get perkier and they start to get livelier and they start to get more energized and engaged and that becomes infectious. And then it doesn't matter how toxic the top is. If that spreads below, they can't stop it growing. And ultimately you start to combat that toxicity by being much more anti that behavior, if you will, and spread that across the organization. And when you see that happening, you can feel it. And we were talking today about some of these characteristics and, you know, what they were doing. And I just said to them, I said, how did that make you feel? And they all sort of paused and said, well, no one's ever asked us that. I was like, how did it make you feel? And there's was like, disappointed. And as a dad, I know what that means. You know, disappointed dad, there's nothing worse than being disappointed. And uh, And someone else said, demoralized. You know, these weren't new workers. These were senior people, but you know, to be disappointed and demoralized in the workplace where you should be happy and having fun. Right. And, I, and one lady said, said, all I want to do is get up in the morning and bring my A game to work.
1: And that's what most employees want to do. And and, exactly. and that's the thing that leaders need to see is when, you, when, when your employees aren't bringing their A game to work, I'm not talking about one bad apple in the bunch, but when you're employees writ large are not bringing their A game to the work, the first place you should start looking for the reason is on your desk is, 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 it, is about two feet behind your desk. And, you know, because, because you probably are part of the problem, if not the problem, but you know, the thing is, and this gets back to what I was saying earlier. Yeah. You've got people who've got the dark triad and stuff and, and, and those people certainly exist, but I would submit that most leaders want to be good leaders. Most leaders want to be great leaders, and they just don't know how how to how to get their teams to bring their A game. And that's why I think it's so important to when you've got a bad leader, when you're in that middle person, like the guy who, who sent you that message, and you've got a bad leader, is is to don't make your default reaction be to, to, to vilify your boss and say, oh, "I've got a crappy boss," you know. But to say, what can I do to help my boss to see if I could, if I could help my boss be a better boss to to lead, to manage up? It's one of the most important skills I learned back when I was a, a journalist working in newspapers was one of my, one of my mentors said, you need to start to learn how to manage up. And I was like, what does that mean? And he said, well, you know, you're not running the newspaper and. Until, you know, until you are, you're always going to have somebody over you and being successful when you're not the person running the organization is as much about managing yourself as it is managing up to your boss and your boss's boss. And and, and I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you know, they want to succeed too. So what you need to think about is how. How can you align the things you want to do that you know will make you more successful with what would make them successful? And then if if you're doing those things and you're communicating to them, I'm doing this and this is helping you, you don't have to be that explicit, but they're seeing that it's making them, they're getting attaboys in meetings, you know, because of what you did and they're taking credit for it. Let, let them take the credit for it. But then that will let lead them to give you more space, clean air to do what you're doing and, and increase that. And it creates a virtuous cycle as it moves up the organization, ideally. So that's an important skill. And that's, again, the tools and techniques that we, that we spend so much time teaching are really designed to help people in that position to manage up in an effective way. Yeah. It allows you to become a trusted agent, doesn't it? Love you know, that talk about trusted agent.
2: You know, you talk about, you know, you've got to have this foundation of trust before you can have healthy conflict. And, you know, I kind of disagree with that because the tools and techniques that we have allow you to have that healthy conflict without having that trust first because of the anonymity they allow and the effectiveness of good discourse without falling out. And then by having that, that builds the trust. Right. So the trust follows by having good arguments and disagree in an agreeable way. And once you get in that room and you see people who can spar with each other, but they're doing it for the greater good, then you start to see them becoming a team. You start to see that the guard drops and they welcome that engagement with each other because by doing so, A, the trust starts to form. They know each other's perspectives and how they are operating cognitively and physically. And they realize that they're all trying to work for the greater good. It's not that individual, you know, I'm Jack, I'm doing this for me. You see that together, we're far more capable. And I, and I sense that's the same if you if you push that up. And I had a colleague in a, in a previous bank, and he was in a very different part of the bank I was, but we, we, we got on over a beer one night and just sort of hit off well. And he came in and he said, Marcus, you know, my boss has been a real, real pain. And he was two levels up and this boss was coming in and being a bit of a tyrant. I'm like, I didn't realize he was like that. You know, I've known this guy a couple of years, and he wasn't that way. And he's, like, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm thinking of moving. I said, look, next time he comes in, get, you know, you're a seniorist guy. I said, get him alone and just say, do you want to go for a coffee? Right. And he's like, what? Why, why would I want to do that? I said, trust me. Just ask, and and from the response, you'll know whether or not it's the right thing to do. And I said, and when he if he if he says yes, say, great, let's go now. Get him out of there and just walk don't say anything, just say, how's things? Are you okay? And see what happens. That's managing up. Exactly. And he came out the next day, he said, dude, I owe you some coaching money. I'm like, what? (laughs) And he's like, did exactly what you said. He said, it was unreal. He said, the guy, as soon as I said, are you okay? He paused for a beat, and it just all came out. And he just had so much going on in his personal life, professional life. And he just said, I don't know what I'm doing. And all the guys said, Well, you do know this is coming into work and affecting everybody who works for you, who used to respect you. And he just didn't realise he was in his midst of everything that was going on. And if you just don't have that time to stop or somebody to talk to, that's often all this toxicity is coming from. You know, it's like illness. It doesn't come from nowhere. There's something toxic causing right. it. And if you can help people let that out, you know, don't look upwards and think they're all ogres or they're all, you know, focus on a certain behavioral aspect of their own. There's often, as you said, apart from the dark triad, but that's very few, the majority of people are well-intended. There's just something going on. And if you don't allow them to have that outlet as well, which many don't up there, it's a lonely place to be at the top. It really is. And if you don't have either you know, a quality coach supporting them to vent to or a group of people who they can go to the pub with and stop being the boss and just talk without judgment you know, and then without you know, breaking down that barrier of support and leadership the next day when you're back in the office, then create that. And it's not hard to do. I keep saying you know, life's about relationships and that's just not with your mates, that's upwards downwards. And as you said, that two upwards reporting and two towards managing, you develop those relationships by that behavior. And I think it's so powerful. And if it is. more people
1: stop to think about that, then, you know, it's a really good position to be in. It is powerful. And as you said, Marcus, it's not hard to do. You know, I think one 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 last piece of advice for leaders who are who are listening or watching this that I would give is, you know, you know, if you've got issues with your team, you know, if there's a lack of trust, a lack of communication, you know, if people are not bringing their a games, and if you're in that position, there's an easy solution, which is to get your team together, and say, I would like to hear from you all. What's working and what's not in our team and what could we be doing better? And then listen, just listen. Don't, don't debate. Don't get upset. Just listen. And when you're done listening, say, thank you very much. That's been really helpful. And go back and think about that on your own before you make any decisions based on that. Right then and there, several things will happen. First off, it'll probably blow your team's mind in a good way. It's a trap. No, in a good way, in a good way. As in like, yeah, you know, wow, you know, the boss just really wanted to hear what I was saying. And, and, and I said it and I didn't get beat up for it. Two, you've started to build that trust. Three, you started to open that line of communication. And four, you're probably going to walk away some, with some really important ideas and insights that you can take and act on to become a better leader. So, It all starts with listening. This is great stuff. Don't be a toxic leader. Be a a great leader, be a thinking leader. Because remember, as we always say, bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think, but the best leaders listen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader Podcast sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss the next idea-filled episode. Also, check out Bryce and Marcus's YouTube channel, Red Team TV. There you'll find video of today's podcast as well as previous episodes. And don't forget to visit redteamthinking.com to learn more about Red Team Thinking work and Marcus and Bryce's upcoming online courses. While you're there, take our free quiz to find out how you rate as a Red Team thinker and if your organization has a Red Team culture, because who thinks wins?